Lonely Monk Productions. I don't know if y'all have heard Beth Has Secrets by Kamoy yet, but yo. That's my joy! That's my joy! What's good, friends and family, neighbors, near and far? Welcome to an all-new episode of the Yo, That's My John podcast. The podcast, website, brand, movement, way of life dedicated to the embrace and championing of your passions. I am your host, Nate Runkle, a.k.a. John Adams, a.k.a. John Hart, a.k.a. John Morton, a.k.a. John Penn, a.k.a. John Hancock. Uh, do you get it? They're all the Johns who signed the Declaration of Independence, a.k.a. Nate 3.0, back at it again with yet another episode of the podcast. As always, I hope this podcast finds you all in good health and in good spirits. Today, I chat with Elliot Green of The Visible Project. We have an awesome chat about community and the changing dynamics of funding creative endeavors and how the Web3 space can be used to build both. And that is coming up in a bit. Well, what's the haps, people? A very happy 4th of July to you and to yours. I hope it is full of festive cookouts and fireworks and all things good, or was, depending on when you listen to this, or will be, in my case alone. Yes, it's the 4th of July and it is cookout time. You know, what, what's, your, what's your go-to cookout food? You know, mine, mine's hot dogs, you know, legit. If not for the forced bun eating, I could fuck up the Nathan's Hot Dog Competitive Eating Contest. Have you ever watched that? You know, how they have to dunk the rolls in the water to huff them down? Fuck that. That alone would make me vomit. The hot dog eating part of it all, though? Yo, I am your huckleberry there, no doubt. The bun? Uh, not so much. I love me some hot dogs, but more specifically, you cook that hot dog on a grill. And dog, you better be putting multiple packs on because I am feasting on those. And of course, you know, 4th of July fireworks are a thing. Are you guys all firework people? Team Katy Perry and whatnot out there feeling like a plastic bag? Yeah, I can dig a good display like the next guy, but I'm not easily impressed. I need to know that you put some thought into it. I need my fireworks to tell a story. I need good music to go along with it. You know, I need you to just do a scotch more than just blow shit up in the air. You feel me? I like a variety of colors. You know, I like large plumes. But uh, those quick, flashy, loud ones? Yeah, it's not for me, really. Use them very sparingly. Though, I guess I should note, those used to terrify me as a kid. Yeah, I was one of those children whose parents had to have them in the car with the windows up to be able to enjoy fireworks, namely because of the big flashy boom boom ones. So, yeah, I think a little of that unease is baked into my DNA. There's probably some correlation that exists between my dislike of those and my revulsion to the sound of balloons popping. Yeah, I don't know. I'm off on a tangent here. God, stop judging me. All, all I'm saying is I like a good firework display like anyone else, but I have my own little quirk. So stop judging me. I will not let you shame me like this. You're so mean. So one of the primary things that Elliot and I discuss are NFTs in the cryptocurrency Web3 space. And I know it's a new and frightening place full of scams and schemes, and I won't pretend that it isn't. But Elliot is now the second person I have talked to on here about NFT projects, G-Love being the first. And I just feel like I need to kind of say something up front. You know, I'm not telling you guys to go invest in crypto. 
do your own research. If you find something that speaks to you, cool. If you don't, don't. These projects and the people I'm having these conversations with on the show, they're people and projects that I personally believe in. In the case of G. Love, to me, his projects are similar to like a non-recurring Patreon account. And with Elliot and the Visible Project, this is more akin to like Kickstarter in that the funding is going to back a film project voted on by the community. We obviously get into more of the specifics during our conversation, but independent cinema is very important to me. Film is a love that's almost parallel to my love of music, and we live in a world where it is getting harder and harder to finance music and film projects. You know, I don't believe that these are get-rich Ponzi schemes. These are people trying to solve a financial problem through an emerging technology— All of that is to say, if you hear the words NFT or crypto and you feel your eyes start to roll into the back of your head, I get it, and I respect that. But I believe that this conversation that we have is an interesting look into a possible way for independent cinema to survive in the world of studios trying to mine any piece of IP they can get their hands on. And honestly, I hope you agree. If you're joining us for the first time here, make sure you follow us on the socials at Yo That's My John and check out our website at www.yothatsmyjohn.com. You can sign up for our new mailing list. Well, not right now, but shortly it'll be up there and you can sign up for it. We're going to start sending updates and behind the scenes stuff to keep you informed on all the cool goings on. And I promise I will never, ever spam you. That would be super lame. And honestly, I really just don't have that kind of focus. My ADD would never, ever allow that. My guest today is a strategy coordinator for ICM Stellar Sports. Earlier this year, he co-founded Habitat Labs, a company focused on development and strategy solutions for the Web3 space. This role led him to partnering with Spike Lee on The Visible Project, a Web3-based project founded on the goals of democratizing the content greenlight process for creators and film fans and creating a valuable use case for NFTs that allows filmmakers, both veteran and new, direct access to financing and to community. Folks, it is my honor to welcome to the show, Elliot Green. a few seconds ladies and gentlemen i am joined today by the great elliot green elliot thank you for joining me here on yo that's my john thanks nate i'm very excited to be here yeah me too you know uh we were kind of just chatting about it but like uh so uh for the listeners like uh elliot and i kind of uh, uh converse over the discord for the uh the visible project uh which we're here to talk about today eventually at some point um uh but so this is like the first time we've gotten to kind of actually speak in real time and not uh typing it out so it's pretty cool to be able to to be able to pull this off i think one of the really cool things about like our community these communities in general web3 and otherwise uh putting people together, finding times to speak and, and hold space and, uh, you know, explore different ideas and creativity. So I am, as I said, very excited to be here. Uh, so cool. Yeah. You know, it, it is true. Like the, the community building, I think, is one of the most interesting things to me about all of these projects is um, like because I've been in projects that um, just don't work. And, you know, and 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 98 percent of those that don't work is just because the community isn't there. You know, so it is very uh, democratic that way in that, like, you know, if <laughs> it's kind of the opposite, if they come, you can build it, you know, like. 
Yes. Uh, and well, to that point, I think part of it is the lack of, for, for the projects that don't succeed, and I, I think there's a, a litany of reasons as to why that happens, but to your point, um, you know, the lack of sort of building value based on feedback from that community is really important. And, and you know, listening to what people want through the lens of whatever that project is, um, you know, something that obviously we'll talk about it, but what we try to do is, you know, have a broader overarching vision and then incorporate the things that people want, you know, from entertainment, from the film and TV space that, you know, we're not really getting anymore or maybe never have. Yeah, it's definitely true. It's definitely true. So let's uh, hop in the Wayback Machine and, and visit a very uh, tiny Elliot. Where did you grow up? Uh, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, uh, in the city of Boston. Uh, I know a lot of people say from Boston. and There's a whole host of suburbs around there. I grew up, um, my family, we actually moved 13 times in and around Boston. I think part of the reason was my mother loved to uh, take stock of the things we had and move on to a new spot, but we didn't move far. Um, yeah. Same school district on those moves or same school district on those moves. Uh, well, uh, I should say between elementary school, same high school, same things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, you know, I actually went to an all boys high school. I wore a coat and tie every single day. Uh, I had every hour of my day rigorously regimented from like six fifty in the morning until honestly, eight o'clock at night with sports and plays and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so for me, when I began looking at, you know, colleges, taking sort of the next step in my education, suddenly the number one priority to me was like, how can I have complete ownership over my schedule? Yeah. Like determine the things that I want to do. So, um, you know, it came from sort of that like semi, um, regimented background to, to, I mean, now, you know, working in web three, there's no playbook. There is no set of rules and guidelines to follow. So, um, yeah, I think it's funny now that you sort of like bring that up thinking about what's the path to get from there to here. Yeah. Um, what, what did your, what did your folks do? Uh, so my mom is a writer, uh, and for a long time she was, uh, she went from being like copywriter to um, she wrote books and plays and most of them like self-published uh, you know, things like that. Um, my dad ran a small business um, started out pre tech boom. He was basically building, um, you know, everything from like when you walk into a bank and you see merchandise uh, in front of, so it's called merchandising management management. But what it is, is if you're running a, you know, an ad campaign and it's like low APR and a home loan, um, they will add, they will create these physical poster boards and the plastic that comes with it. It's really sort of a nitty gritty, like going around up and down the Eastern seaboard. My dad would travel, you know, pretty much every day. Um, and the promise he made to my mom was that, you know, cause he had me and, and I have two older brothers that are twins, eight years older than me. Um, and he always said, you know, I'm going to be home by dinner. And so he would literally wake up six 30 in the morning, take the shuttle from Boston Logan down to whatever city he was going to. And he would be on the, you know, five 30 PM shuttle back. Um, and then around, you know, 2000, the tech boom taking place, um, they sort of digitized that technology, mm-hmm. um, and brought in, 
you know, actually a really cool solution to basically uh, allow for, you know, large brands that are based in, um, uh, you know, major cities and they have outposts, you know, stores all around the country. How do you manage what those stores look like, right? How do you manage when you walk in and make sure that you have a consistent customer experience throughout? So what they built, what my dad built was basically this tool where, you know, someone, a CMO sitting in a corporate office could go to the Cambridge, Massachusetts store and look at the floor plan and actually see where people are going first and spending the most amount of time and then put the things from their catalog uh, in the right places to gain the maximum exposure. So that's what he did. And then, uh, you know, they are uh, older now and uh, live down in Naples, Florida and are enjoying their, um, the next chapter of their life. That is awesome. That is awesome. Like it's, it's, you know, that, that kind of um, uh, examining that kind of data, um, is, so is that like in your guys' blood or something? Because you did some data work as well, correct? You know, I've worn a couple <laughs> different hats throughout my my career at this point. Uh, yeah. Some of that probably could be attributed to just trying to figure out what to do, what sure. something that I just love to wake up in the morning and do. Um, my dad didn't go to college, actually. So he, you know, um, part of that reason was his father, you know, ran a small business and um, was massively in debt um, right around the time my dad would have gone to college. And basically my dad said, you know what, I'm going to go and try to help you pull you out of debt. And he did that. And, you know, by that point he was a little bit older and sort of moved on with his, you know, his life to his next, his next challenges. But, you know, that my mother has always prioritized education for us. Um, and so, you know, my, my two older brothers and I, you know, worked hard in school um, to varying degrees of success for sure. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, I would say the data side of it, isn't necessarily in my blood, just something I understand the value of and have tried yeah. to you know, sort of spend some time focusing on at various chapters. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, when you were in, so in, in your regimented high school, um, did you kind of have an idea or a dream of what, what you wanted to be? Uh, or what were you looking, what were you kind of focused on like towards those last few years before mm-hmm. graduating? So I wanted to be a news anchor. Yeah. I thought that Brian Williams was the most trusted man in America. <laughs> the hell out of him. I was like, you know, my dad and I would, we would watch the nightly news. You know, when he came back and like right before dinner, the, you know, 7 p.m. news, 6.30 p.m. news, we'd put on Brian Williams. I wrote a little bit for the school newspaper. I um, thought about going to journalism school, almost did go to journalism school. And then eventually, you know, right around that time when sort of the rubber meets the road and you're making those decisions about like what direction you want to take your life. I realized I don't really want to just report on things. I, you know, I'd like to try to um, provide some value around the margins of uh, whatever it is I'm doing. Not that, by the way, that you know, reporters don't do that. I think they they hold a fundamentally valuable place in society. I I think at the end of the day, for me, it was like, can I really just write articles every week? Can I am I am I even a good enough writer to do that? Um, so I gave up the, the newspaper newsman, you know, TV reporter dream, um, pretty quickly towards the end of my senior year of high school. And then when I went to college, I I was a history major. So, uh, I think the most eloquent way I've heard someone describe a history major is that it's one where you learn how to learn now that might, um, be really just using flowery language to describe something that doesn't have a whole lot of prospects when you get out of college. Um, but for me, it was, you know, I've always loved, um, American history, uh, you know, from inception has been something that I've, I've basically still study to this day. Um, 
you know, East Asian, Southeast Asian history has always, for some reason, been, you know, particularly valuable to me. And then I went to, um, you know, I, I studied Chinese throughout my education and I lived in Beijing briefly um, and, you know, had that experience as well. So like that culture and, and sort of the history of that culture as well is something that I really wanted to continue to explore in college. That's incredible. Uh, what, what brought you to Beijing? Um, I was basically, I was accepted into a program for people who were, who had, you know, achieved the language to X level and were trying to get to two X and three X. Um, and so I went pretty young age, actually, I was, uh, 16. I, when I lived there for five months, it was like this weird thing in between, you know, semesters in the summer. Um, and it was a wonderful experience. And I actually, I haven't been back since, uh, since then. So it's been, you know, years. Wow, that's 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 amazing. Like, uh, is, was that something you could um, truly appreciate at sixteen, or or when you look back on it, or do you, do you feel uh, any uh, you know uh, regret or time wasted of what you could have gotten out of it, or do you think you got? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my Chinese for sure got better. Yeah, but I think that my ability to sort of understand and embrace culture, I wasn't necessarily mature enough at that time to like really you know, know what it meant to live in a foreign country, in a foreign city. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think I try not to dwell too much on regret uh, sure. or, you know, what would I do different in the past? Because I think there's just so much to do in the future here and going forward. Um, but I would say it's a really valuable experience for anyone in that sort of formative age, um, as long as you uh, go there with the right intentions. Yeah. Yeah, no, that definitely that definitely tracks. Uh, so you you said you uh, you graduated and went to um, where did you go to college? I went to Brown University. Went to Brown. Okay, um, but before you graduated, and and this is part of the research. You know, you as a as a podcast host, you got to dig up all the good dirt. Um, tell me a little bit about this uh, squash, uh, this fourth place squash championship. Wow! Oh my <laughs> god! You went back and found that. This is actually a seminal memory of my life because I was, um, I, you know, I had some medical complications uh, during my high school career, which sort of, it, it appeared like it was going to waylay me from being able to be an athlete. Um, and, you know, thanks to some great doctors, I was able to sort of persevere and, um, you know, I can go, I can talk about, I don't feel any sort of way about that. I'm happy to talk about it, but um, the long story short is, we ended up, uh, and so to be specific, it's actually not fourth place. We got, we got third place. Okay. Um, and, and what happened was, so it's the high school, uh, nationals for squash. I know a lot of people might not know what squash is. Think of it as, uh, it's a little bit similar to racquetball. Um, we're seeing paddle tennis really popular lately. Uh, squash is actually a very international sport, predominantly played on the East coast of the United States. There are more courts per capita, uh, in the middle East and in India than anywhere else in the world. Um, and it's, I think it was, it was born in Harrow, England or something like that. Um, but our team, you know, it's one of my great, like sort of memories from high school, uh, cause the squash team is eight people. Um, we travel, you know, around the country to play well, mostly up and down the Eastern seaboard to play. And, uh, the, for our team to sort of come in, uh, in the top five of the nation that year, you know, it's a very small school that we went to. There was 86 boys in a class, um, all boys school. Uh, 
you know, we, we felt like we really did something out there. Um, and by the way, I should say I was seventh of seven on the team. I was at the bottom of the ladder. There's an eighth who's an alternate. I was not the alternate, but I was seventh on the ladder. But every point counts the same. A win is a win. So I, yes. you know, I, I hold that to be true. That's cool. You know, like I'm a, I am a uh, connoisseur of um, kind of um, very specific, you know, uh, games and stuff like that. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, I definitely have to ask about it. Cause like, uh, I, I, this has come up in the podcast a few times, but I'm a disc golfer. So like, uh, oh yeah. So like, I definitely appreciate like a good uh, under underground sport, if you will. <laughs> you and there's know? some great courses, I think, around your area, right? For, for playing disc golf. As yes. I'm- 100%. And they just keep adding new ones and i love it oh it's so great i just played a tournament on uh um on uh sunday and uh you said uh you know you were seven of eight i uh placed uh 23rd out of 26 so (laughs) but did you have fun i did i did have fun i also split my pants though so that was (laughs) the highs and lows i didn't know there was that much movement in disc golf so you're oh yes 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 uh it's a lot of a lot of bending i was under a bush trying to putt out of uh you know some forestry but but that's that's what happens so uh you go to brown university uh was that was that your choice like was that your primary choice uh yeah that's where i wanted to go to college i actually um i live in los angeles now i I went and toured a college out here called pomona which is a very small college up in claremont california uh which it's a really beautiful part of the world if if any of your listeners get a chance to check it out um and i almost went there the only thing was they didn't let me in so that's like a minor Uh, yeah yeah but um so you know i ended up at brown i'm very happy about that um it was a great, you know, educational experience for me. Um, polar opposite of my high school. Like you can take every class pass fail if you want at Brown. And in fact, there was a girl the year before me who took every class for her four years pass fail and then got into BC Law School. So I'm not sure if that says something about Brown's curriculum or BC Law School, but I'll leave that up for interpretation. <laughs> That's crazy. That is that would have been uh, very helpful for me in uh, <laughs> in college. Yep. yep, I will say that I did use that. I, I used that uh, feature feature um uh because it was there yeah absolutely yeah if if, if you're not going to use it it's going to waste right mm-hmm. like uh, agreed um, so um uh, ar- is it around this time that you know also again i'm telling you the deep dive i did uh was it around this time that you uh uh interned for joe kennedy yes it is um Wow. Okay. See, I didn't even know that some of this stuff was publicly available information. So maybe you're reminding me of, uh, is it Nardwar? Who, yeah, yes, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. it reminds me of Nardwar. He meets the artist. There's an incredible video of him, I think, bringing up like J. Cole's first album or something. Uh, yeah. Something you know, no one was ever supposed to see. Um, but I have no problem with people knowing that I interned for Joe. Um, so yeah, I've been, you know, civically engaged uh, throughout my, my life, um, you know, I've actually worked on three different political campaigns. I never wanted to go into it professionally, but I always thought, you know, they're, they're usually, you're, you're, you're not paid most often you're, you're doing a a civic service. And I, I think you have to really believe in the candidate. Um, And, you know, in that instance, um, I certainly did and do. Yeah, no, it's cool. Like uh, the um, uh, that kind of world is something I'm very interested in, like the kind of uh, campaign world, because like like you said, like it, it you you have to do it from a p- place of love um, for the the essentially for the person you're you're you know, you're selling um, and um, or pushing for. 
And, um, you know, the more and more I study uh, about candidates, the more and more I get interested in the people that work for them. And I feel like it kind of gives a, a better picture of who they are, you know, like. It's a really interesting um, sort of analogy to Web3 here, actually, which is, you know, we, if you, if you create a project or you're a candidate creating a campaign, you have sort of these core, you know, pillars that you want to stand on, but it's entirely the um, like responsibility of the community, if you're Web3, of the interns and volunteers, if it's a campaign, to shepherd that out into the world. And the most successful campaigns and projects are really effective at first creating that groundswell of energy inside and then finding ways to channel that for the outside world to come and join them. So, you know, in some ways, I guess, even though I didn't go into politics, there's, there, are, there are similarities yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so uh, d- did you uh, uh, four years? Um, did you finish in four years? Mm-hmm. Look at you on time. I love it. <laughs> it barely it got close there for a minute, but uh, no, made it out. Um, and I moved down to New York City. I became a consultant, which is when you really don't know that you don't know what you want to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, when you go and you, you do. I did that for a couple of years and it was a great experience. Um, you know, I consulted with a bunch of like Fortune 500 companies. Uh, by the way, can you hear this car alarm? Is that is I that can, but it's all right. It's not. It's not too distracting. Uh, sorry, can you please repeat your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you were talking about uh, moving down to New York, becoming a consultant. Yep, yeah. consulted for some Fortune 500 companies. So my my job as a consultant was to fire people. So I was George Clooney and up in the air, and it was oh, horrible. Yeah, horrible. That- that um i've i've you know uh i work uh management in my uh day job and whatnot and that is literally like there's no it never gets better like it, you know i i thought like i would probably get cold to it at some point but it doesn't like it just uh, it it is bad every time yeah you can imagine you know 22 year old kid like letting go uh i remember i was working in a really prominent newspaper um and letting go of these if they had tenure in newspapers, these would have been tenured reporters, you know, 35, 40 years on the job. Um, and so I did that, um, you know, based obviously like expressed my dismay for having been given that role within the ecosystem. Um, and, you know, things sort of changed a little bit and moved on to some different projects. The best project I ever worked on was actually for Christie's Auction House, which is, you know, the, the primary it's Christie's and Sotheby's are the two major auction houses globally. Um, and our job was to redesign their customer journey. Now, the short answer to that, you know, the question is, how do you get people you know, my age at that time and, and, and age now, basically anybody under the age of 45 to come into our auction houses and, and, and transact? Well, the short answer is you have to sell something, anything for less than $50,000, Right. And yeah. uh, they were like, well, that's not on the table. So then we spent the next six months trying to come up with other solutions. Yeah. Um, what, what, kind of, what kind of ideas like were, were kicked around that were not used because that's uh... sure. I, you know, I think the best idea that we had that was like actually incorporated years after we finished the program was uh, don't focus on the sales, use it as a forum for gathering first. So basically you have these, um, you know, you have these auction houses that are essentially museums and, but nobody goes into them because they think that they have to, if they're going to go in there, they have to buy something. So um, years after Christie's started hosting like young professional nights, particularly in their New York office um, and in their London base. 
And they started getting unbelievable, not only access to, you know, potential future buyers, but also artists who are coming in and like relating to the space, finding someone who worked at Christie's and saying like, Hey, you know, by the way, I have this collection, which opened for them, as I understand it, an entirely new, you know, vertical of, um, uh, of art to, to, to sell, to put into their ecosystem. Um, and, you know, the good thing about Christie's is that they are all about innovation in a bunch of different ways. So they are one of the first to jump into web three and sell, you know, high profile NFTs, board apes and beeples and things like that, um, f- you know, f- in that, in that forum. And I think to their, to their credit, you know, and we could talk about like the market cycles of web three and NFTs, but, um, their stamp of legitimacy definitely helped power sort of that next, you know, six, eight, 12 months of, of bull market run as I yeah. see it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like there's not to me as, as someone invested in, in web three, there's nothing more exciting than when I hear like a major name has interest. Cause I'm just like, Oh, okay. Let me check this account real quick. Like uh, it's always good. I mean, it's good for everybody. Like it, it does, it legitimizes kind of a bit of the wild west um, nature of it, you know, yes. and, and, and it's, it's needed. Like it's really needed. Like uh, uh, because uh, there's a lot of um, really bad projects out there. And yes. to be able to kind of differentiate and be able to, you know, recognize um, legitimacy is is really key, um, especially right now with um, people unsure of how to even get started in, in the space. You know, I agree with you. I think what's also interesting about it to me is that when you have people or brands with a name that holds weight, that when they begin to prioritize, you know, something outside of just the floor price of their collection, you're often, it's that bizarre thing where just providing value around the margins that allows a project's floor price to rise and the, and the collection to succeed and the momentum to gather under it. Um, and so I, I com- I completely agree with you on that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, so not to jump around or anything, but, uh, how did you end up at ICM? So, well, Post consulting, I wanted to do something very different, and I was ready to. You know, I've always loved. I mentioned that I was in plays growing up. Um, you know, my mom's a writer. I've always loved um, the arts. You know, fundamentally tried to embrace and support. You know, various types uh, of of art um, throughout my life. And then I thought, like, what if I try to make a business out of it? You know, what if that could be my career? Um, and so I, I went over to ICM because they had an opening in their, um, their TV literature department, film and TV literature. So that's the job of working with writers, uh, essentially to, if it's TV, help them either get their pilots sold into a network and get picked up, uh, or to find them a, a deal, you know, writing on a show in a staffing room. Um, with film, it's, you know, slightly different. It's really about getting the right eyes on scripts and the right directors and actors to see scripts and, and want to attach themselves to it. Um, and it, for me, you know, not under, loving art and entertainment, but not really understanding the, the business of it in any way, it became a ridiculous crash course in it. Um, you know, 12 months of just like taking information through a fire hose. And um, at a certain point, you know, our business expanded and we, we purchased a, a soccer agency. So, well, it's a, it's a sports agency with a huge focus on soccer representing over 1300 players uh, in Europe and around the world. 
a lot of like real household names for, for fans. Um, and, you know, I saw an opportunity in that space where like in entertainment, what we're seeing is first of all, sports is pre NFTs was really like the last growing vertical. Um, it was the one thing where we were seeing like just upward trajectory of growth in all facets of it. And second of all, the sort of combination, the melding of sports and storytelling becoming such an important thing in the space. Um, you know, I'd point to like Formula One Drive to Survive. If you've seen that, it's essentially a, a drama series that they've written uh, and they chop it together, by the way, and really sort of at times misrepresent people and what they say for the end goal of entertainment. Um, but what that's done for that sport and sort of growing the national and international audience of that, um, you know, can't be overstated. So I jumped from working with just TV and film writers over to the sports side and then about uh, 18 months ago, NFT started coming along and we started receiving, you know, offers for our athletes to participate in different types of NFT collections or have their own. Um, and it just sort of came out of nowhere, man. It was like, no one was talking about this. And then all of a sudden I had all these things on my desk that were from new upstart companies and, you know, major investors getting in its face and some of our athletes started saying like, Hey, have you looked at this? Have you seen this? Some of our writers saying, have you looked at this? Have you seen this? Um, you know, legacy Hollywood agencies are not always the first to like grab innovation and, and sort of position themselves in front of like the next chapter of, of what, uh, you know, content and commerce looks like. Uh, I think that a lot of Hollywood could probably be um, accused of that rightfully. So, um, what was great about ICM partners was that they recognized the need to be agile in that space, particularly if something like this was growing. So, you know, right around that time, I talked to the higher ups. I said, I think this is something we should be focusing on. And they allowed me to spend hundred percent of my time on this space. So um, and that sort of, you know, long winding road to eventually, you know, working on the visible project. Uh, that's, that's, that's amazing. You know, yeah, it, it's, it's funny that, uh, kind of your entry point there, because I think some of the first NFTs I really heard about were, um, like the, the NBA stuff, like was through sports. So yep. like, um, and then, and then, like you said, like it was everywhere out of no, like it went from, Oh, that's an interesting thing. I, you know, I wonder, you know, cause, um, were you, were you investing in crypto, prior to all of that, or was that kind of your entry point into all of web three? So I'd lose, I'd been, you know, shekels, throwing shekels into, into crypto for a couple of years. Um, and NFTs, my first NFT that I ever purchased was an NFT box, uh, by this artist named Pranksy. Um, and it's, you would get the box and then, you know, we now know this is part of like the reveal phase. So understanding a little bit more about this space now, obviously. Um, at the time, I just had this one NFT that said, you know, it's like January 2020 or March 2021 um, NFT box. And then three days later, it's like explodes. And then inside of it, you have all this art from all these different artists. And I thought it was an unbelievable way to like get exposure to a bunch of different really talented artists that were starting to build in this space. Um, and then I just sort of dove in from there. Yeah. Um, so, um, it, and I guess that kind of correlated around the same time as ICM finding their interest in it. Um, when you, um, when you first started, you know, it's, it's in, first of all, amazing that they uh, kind of believed in you enough to let you dedicate 
that much time into something like that. Um, when you were kind of discussing with, you know, um, uh, athletes and stuff like that, though, was there any hesitant? Has there ever been any hesitation to kind of adapting it? Like, have you had to, you know, gain someone's trust to be like, oh, just trust me on this and let's uh, or or has everybody been, you know, pretty open to it? Well, just to your first point, um, it's like remarkable uh, stewardship of a business to sort of recognize when there are opportunities in the market that are developing. And if you have people on your team and they want to go chase them, um, you know, it's a sign of like, I think a really healthy business to be able to say, we can, we can facilitate this. And, you know, it's sort of like scratching a lottery ticket, right? Like it could go really well. There's also the chance that it could go nowhere and that's a bunch of lost productivity. So I am very grateful to them for like giving me that opportunity without a doubt. And to your, to your point, um, you know, I had to start by convincing them and sure. then I had to convince uh, my, my MO with regards to, you know, how I would bring this to clients of the agency was always from an educational point of view first, you know, we would get approached by the major crypto platforms. So crypto.com, you know, for example, would come to us and say, we want to work with X athlete or X creator and we will pay them Y and, um, we will, you know, facilitate all this stuff. And then really what we're trying to do is bring their port, their audience from their Instagram and their Twitter over onto our platform. And we understand the value of that today. You know, that's why crypto.com has you know, taken over the Staples Center and it's the crypto.com arena. It's, it's, it's owning brain space. It's right. It's owning, uh, making your name the first one that people think about, even if they have never bought crypto before and have no plans to that when they finally do, they think, oh yeah, that company that I never figured I would interact with. And so I knew that was sort of the foundation of a lot of these deals. To be frank, they were not like art first. They were not community first. Um, and we have, particularly with the European soccer market, something that's very notable about that is, is that the fan relationship with their teams and the players is very different than what it is over here in America. So what I mean by that is because fandom is like grandfathered in over there, particularly for soccer clubs, right? Where, um, you know, your great-grandfather was a fan of Chelsea and everybody down the family tree is a fan of Chelsea. And there's a certain expectation of what a Chelsea player is supposed to do and how they're supposed to handle themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you have to be very, very careful about the risks that you take with your personal brand because if you as a player release some sort of profit generating activity, you know, whether it's um, starring in a, a TV pilot or it's uh, releasing a new line of clothing or being the spokesperson for a, a new uh, clothing brand to releasing an NFT. And then you go out and you play poorly on Saturday, then Sunday through Friday before the next match day are going to be horrible. And it's people, you know, the players, you know, you have to bring them, uh, opportunities that, that feel like they fit and are on brand. Um, and so my sort of educational process would always revolve around understanding who the person was, what their public facing image and brand is all about. And is there a way to, you know, realistically incorporate that into this growing space, <clears throat> by the way, and you can't do it with everyone, right? I mean, right. people that it's going to be right for, and there's people that it, no matter which way you try to finagle it, it's just their relationship to their fans, you know, sometimes just doesn't allow it. Now that was in the early days of that. Now that we understand sort of 
passion-driven projects, uh, passion project-driven NFTs, right? Um, it sort of has totally changed how an athlete, a creator can approach this space. And it doesn't have to be all about, here's my art, go buy it. I get money. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Um, it's, it's absolutely incredible. The, um, how did, so how did you, at what point in kind of doing all this, did you kind of, uh, come up with the concept of putting together Habitat Labs, um, and spinning sure. that off? Sure. So, you know, uh, Habitat came out of a couple conversations with my co-founder, Alex, well, not a couple conversations, a lot of conversations over the, um, the winter and spring, uh, and then, you know, early summer of last year, um, basically understanding that what we're seeing is so much platform driven. It feels like web two. Um, and what I was seeing in terms of the deals coming in, um, and, you know, as I said, just sort of porting the audience over, what would it look like if a brand, a creator, an athlete, a chunk of IP actually owned the entrance and their means of distribution in the space? What would it take to build that? How would we go about doing that? Is there value for that? Um, and I think what we saw over the next you know, year and a half is you know, d- decidedly, yes, there is value in that if executed the right way. Um, and the opportunities that are unlocked by doing that, particularly around sort of galvanization of community of a, on, on a certain cause or mission um, and access, you know, fundamentally it's, creators, brands, if they can identify, you know, the five, 10,000 people, and we operate in those numbers for now, right? I think the next chapter is what's the 50 and hundred thousand for certain brands and IP. And if you can identify those people um, and have a direct line to them, continuously provide value for them. Um, it creates a really healthy relationship between fan slash consumer and the, the creator or the IP. So, um, you know, Habitat Labs was designed to basically never approach two projects the same. Um, we understand the sort of nuance between every creator and every, you know, franchise and their audience, um, and that there are different ways that they interact and, and provide value uh, to one another. So we started with the tech stack, um, you know, have some incredible developers we work with and, and basically have like a slate of features that we can turn on and off depending on whatever um, you know, the end goal is of the project uh, and what they're trying to achieve on that platform. Um, and, you know, we do custom development, basically project by project basis, understanding you know, if there's something in our tech stack that we haven't built, we build it, particularly if we understand there's sort of like a, a potential wave of a market trend coming that could see that feature being particularly valuable. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, Habitat has been really exciting to work on for the last year and a half. And then, sort of launching with Spike um, and with the Visible Project uh, really became a no-brainer because it's just the ethos all sort of fit. That's yeah, so that's a, a perfect pivot into um, you know the 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 pro- the current project, the visible project. Um, so did you guys reach out to Spike or did Spike reach out to you? Because I know he had interest kind of in the space. Um, how did that all come about? So um, we were reached out to on behalf of Spike. Um, and I sat down with him for the first time in November of 2021. And, you know, as I said, I sort of like try to approach all of those conversations, whether I was at the agency or, you know, in a capacity at Habitat Labs, 
I try to approach it as an educational sort of session conversation. Let's just, I want to learn about what you have and want to do. I'm going to teach you what I can about this space and we'll try to see if we can fit some things together. And that conversation was so fundamentally valuable for us because, you know, I was speaking to someone who understood what it meant to have true ownership over their art. And so Spike going back and systematically purchasing, you know, the rights to his films whenever possible. I, I think he owns five of his films outright now, including, of course, his first one, 1986. You know, she's got to have it. It's such a, a fucking great movie. <laughs> like it's one, of, it's 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 one of my favorites. Uh, it, it is definitely up there. Um, so you know, you guys kind of um, did a um, like a soft launch kind of rollout um, that uh, became not so soft. Is that correct? Because it seemed to blow up really fast. <laughs> So we had a conversation. We were going to schedule Spike to be on the Gary V podcast. And they actually have a friendship, a relationship because of the New York connection, New York Knicks connection. Um, you know, so they, they know each other. And we were trying to lock in a date for that. And then all of a sudden it was like, hey, here's a date. We can do it. Like, let's go. And, you know, it was one of those things where when you get the opportunity to book that, you book that. Even if it's yeah. on a day you're not totally prepared for. Um, and so, yeah, we, you know, sort of went into hyperdrive. The great thing about this is that, like, we started working on the tech for this. Um, what's it's June now, so eight months ago, effectively. Um, not not the t- not just the tech for it, but like the strategy of the project and really the art of it. So, um, we were somewhat prepared for the launch, but more so, like, because what we really were still building was our team. Um, and, and now, you know, we're in a place where we're really excited about the team members that we have, about the art that we have, about the mission and the community that we're building, um, and, you know, letting the world know about it. And we were planning, and I think, by the way, this is a learning moment for us because there's probably an argument to be made that we should have just started telling people about it, you know, eight months ago and like slowly started to build them. But what we really wanted to do was be able to provide like immediate value to the community as they flock to this. So instead of having, you know, uh, eight, 10 month wait, it's, you know, about two months. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and, you know, uh, the, the community itself, like I said, I, I kind of jumped in early when I heard about it um, because the project ex- itself excited me. Um, and then like kind of once I kind of joined the community, like I, I, the excitement level was kind of, you know, just intensified in that, like, I was like, Oh, these guys are doing it right. Like they know, they know the importance and the value um, is in the people in, you know, kind of invested in it. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that the, any you know, that like kind of, we said earlier that a project can live or die if this, if this is not built uh, correctly and it was built correctly, but um, you know, and, 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 and it's not, you know, you, you haven't really launched yet um, the, the NFT tell everybody like kind of the, the, pro- the visible project, what the project is. Sure. Uh, by the way, just curious first, uh, how did you hear about it? Um, that's a good question. I think I I think someone shared um a, a clip from the from the Gary V um interview is probably what it was. Um, if it wasn't that, so um my my entry into into the space and stuff like that, my coworker um back in like early 2017 
was like, hey, why don't you just start putting some money in in um, Bitcoin and stuff? He's like, I've been doing it and it's been really crazy to watch. And I was like, eh, I'm not really an investee, guys. And he was like, all right, just put like seventy five dollars in. And I was like, OK. And then and then the end of 2017 happened and I went, oh, this is a thing I do now. So, uh, <laughs> you know, um, and, and then and then it was very quiet for a few years. And then uh, last year it picked up again. And then, you know, that's when I kind of started pivoting. You know, I had, you know, stuff that I didn't have before. So uh, that's when I started looking at NFTs and stuff. And that's kind of absolutely how I came to you. But um, but yeah, so um, tell them about the Visible Project. Yeah, sure. So the Visible Project is um, it's a Web3 film studio and well, really film and creativity studio that uh, the idea behind it is you know, we are taking this piece of legacy IP from Spike's first film, She's Gotta Have It. Um, we sat down and we took every frame of Mars Blackman out of that film it was a long, laborious process, um, but we actually took the 35 millimeter out of cold storage. It was in upstate New York uh, and, and brought it down to Manhattan. And, you know, every frame of Mars comes out to 3945 from that original 35 millimeter, 3,945 total frames. We then worked with um, some really talented artists to create properties based on the film. Uh, and built a generative algorithm that will match and mix and match everything together um, to create, you know, varied collectability because we do sort of want to respect and pay homage to the, the, the NFT space that has arisen over the past two years um, and understanding the value of being able to sort of scratch your lottery ticket and see what you get. Um, and what we're doing out of all of that, the, the sale of those NFTs, the, the community on Discord and, and Twitter starting to emerge is we want to basically work with our community to help create content and experiences in the entertainment space that either it's due to the theme parkization of the movie theaters or the you know rapid diversification of streaming platforms and like what that has meant for content and creators to allow people to sort of green light what they want to see. So because of who Spike is and the connections that he has in that world um, and from my time in the entertainment space, you know, we have, we have access to what I think is really, you know, a Rolodex of the next great generation of storytellers. And what we're going to have them do is submit a proposal on a short film that they want to make. And every Mars NFT is a vote and you will get to choose as being part of the community, what films you want to see made. It's sort of the beginning of it there, because then throughout that, we will be introducing the community. Um, and some of this we haven't you know, released yet. So I'm actually excited to tell you about this right now. Very uh, cool. We will be sort of keeping the community tied into the project throughout the production of it. Like I'm not sure any project really ever has before. Um, so you can think about things like, and I'm not going to be able to sort of tell you exactly what they are, but things like the ability to have access onto the set every week to recap what's been going on inside the editing room to see what that process looks like. Um, and then of course, when those films are finished, they're going to live on our platform first on the visibleproject.io uh, behind a token gateway where you have to have an NFT to see the films initially. Um, and at the end of the year, when they're all made, we're going to have a film festival, the Visible Project Festival. It's actually a multidisciplinary uh, music, film, keynote speakers, art, all in person and digital. Uh, and we're are planning to do it in Brooklyn, New York, of course, because that is Spike is the de facto mayor of Brooklyn, if you will. 
coming out of that, you know, our plan is to basically create a financial mechanism for short filmmakers that doesn't exist in the space right now. And so what that looks like is I think that because of the excitement around this project, the community that we have being, you know, as engaged as they are, um, what we want to do is we want to be the first NFT project to actually put content onto a major streaming service. And so we're going to package that as sort of the visible project limited series season one, um, take the five or six best projects that are made out of it as voted on by the community, package that together and allow the rest of the world to see it. It's, it's incredible. You know, I, um, uh, I've always, um, I've always loved film and I wanted to be a filmmaker for the longest time before um, I uh, then, you know, decided I was going to be a musician. And then I decided I was I just I could never decide on what 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 my uh, entertainment entry point was. But film has always been something very deep in my heart. So that was, uh, you know, um, the other thing that really excited me about this is because it reminds me, you know, much as um, she's got to have it reminds me of kind of that independent spirit, that kind of, you know, um, ground funded, um, you know, outside of a studio kind of system. And, and the idea that, you know, um, you are kind of putting it to a vote is like the democratization of independent cinema. And, and it's phenomenal to me like that, that, you know, it, the project will give, the resources for, you know, a, uh, a vision that may not have been able to fund that vision previously, you know? Um, and that's, that's right. really, that's really exciting. Like, uh, uh, like have, what is the, um, what is the feedback you've been getting on it? Like just, you know, from kind of a filmmaker community, like uh, what is the interest level? Sure. Well, just on your, your, your last point first, and it ties into your question, it, we're seeing that, you know, this is the new studio. Like yeah. the future of studios, the way that projects, you know, at the very least create a floor for success, because one of the hardest things for filmmakers to do, aside from getting funding, is to actually get eyeballs on their projects. It's, think about the service Vimeo, right? Vimeo is an unbelievable platform. And I would say something like 90% of short films that are made are housed on Vimeo. People also put them on YouTube, but really where they originally live is on Vimeo. Um, not to like dog on the company, but Vimeo doesn't even have like a featured video of the week homepage. Like you right. can't even see, uh, you don't have like a collection you can, you can scroll through on Vimeo. Um, and especially in this day and age with, with projects, with studios making the sure bets, right? Saying we're going to invest in the projects that we know have a floor of success. And that's increasingly being comic book adaptations, right? It's increasingly mm -hmm. action films with not as big budgets as they used to have, but still big budgets. And you know, people still feel like, oh, it's a movie theater experience. Um, the feedback we're getting from the community is that it, this is like sort of long overdue. Why did this technology need to come around for this sort of groundswell of wait, we want to see diverse stories and we want to be entertained in different ways, you know, be allowed to take place. Um, I think it, the one thing I will say though, is it's a, it's an interesting model to say to filmmakers, like we're going to have this community of people judge if your film deserves being made. And I think that it requires a lot of empathy on the part of our community to understand like, the value um, 
both that they bring to the filmmaker, but also like how sensitive it is for someone who, you know, puts a lot of their self into a script, into a pitch deck, into a project that they want to see brought to life. Um, and to bring that to a community of people and say yes or no, usually they're getting a yes or no in different rooms around the city. But in this instance, they're getting a yes or no from like a, a large group of people who are, who have said that they want to fund the next great filmmakers. And so, you know, I, I do just want to say that. And I think that some of the discourse and conversations that we'll have around that going forward will be really healthy and important for our community to just sort of like understand the position of power that you're put in by having this ability to green light these films. Um, and there's different ways that we want to do that too, by the way. I mean, I think I, I, I gave you sort of the high overarching, you know, roadmap of what we really want to do here. And around the margins of that, I think are where a lot of value is built. And in particular, that comes around how we introduce filmmakers into the community, because even people that don't get funding do have the chance to attract an entirely new audience base, right? People who are going to follow them left and right and center to see like what they're making next and go back and watch their old films. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm excited for how we're going to do that, for how we're going to introduce filmmakers into this community, you know, the ability for our community to interact with them, ask them questions, learn from them. Um, you know, are we going to, is someone in our community going to be, you know, second grip in uh, production at some point for some filmmaker? I feel like absolutely. And based on what we know about the community, there's a lot of people who are either aspiring filmmakers or they're working currently in the industry in one capacity or another. And, you know, there's the opportunity for some like really healthy, I think, career building to come out of it as well. Definitely, definitely. You know, and and it, it brings us back again uh, to the community. Um, and, you know, I, I, I keep praising you guys on 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 the community you built um but uh, uh, you know another good portion of that um are like your community managers and stuff like that you have just a very good team of people interacting and that's like another another facet that like you know maker makes or breaks a project is having having the right team um where did you where did you find your team like where did how did how did you put them together who were you kind of looking for Sure. So, um, you know, the, uh, a couple different answers to that question. The first is, so Big Brother um, is, you know, I, I can credit him for finding, you know, um, people like Jose and Morgan um, and really actually being able to cover different time zones because we do anticipate that this project will grow internationally substantially, particularly with, fi uh, with Spike's, you know, fan base. He's like, they love him in France and at Cannes. Um, he is huge fans in South Korea. Um, and we want to engage with those filmmakers and those communities as well, people from those places. So we were able to, you know, work with Big Brother to build out that team. Um, I want to give a huge shout out to Tisha. Oh my um, God, yes. Community and strategy lead. Um, Tisha, you know, is a remarkable human being and incredibly, you know, I, the second time I'll use this word empathy in this conversation, but this is probably the more important time. Tisha's ability to be like an empathetic figure in a variety of different ways is what I think has allowed her to, she's not a web three native, which by the way, I think is a little bit of a misnomer because nobody's really been in this space for all that long to call themselves a native. Sure. Hasn't been around long enough, but this is Tisha's first project in web three. And she has just grabbed onto this 
um, grab the reins. Uh, you know, we're really excited to see her leading you know, discussions, quizzes in the server, uh, doing movie nights, um, community AMAs. We have a lot of stuff in store for Tisha. Um, she's only beginning to sort of scratch the surface of her potential. Uh, and it's really cool for me to see, you know, her grow and flourish in this role. Um, you know, we've spoken a little bit about highlighting different filmmakers. I want to mention quickly that we will be highlighting this week um, our first through we're, a program we're calling TVP Spotlight. Um, a Mexi uh, an American filmmaker, Mexican-American filmmaker named Emil Gallardo. Uh, Emil created a film called One, Two, Three, All Eyes on Me. It's a uh, very decorated short. Um, it's won a lot of different competitions and been recognized left, right, and center. And um, it depicts a school shooting in no uncertain terms. It's a very real visceral depiction of that. And, you know, when we were talking as a, as a group about are we prepared to be a forum for this conversation, one of the things that gave me a lot of confidence in saying, you know, a resounding yes is Tisha and her ability to sort of hold space for um, more difficult conversations and understanding like how to be empathetic to different perspectives in those conversations and also understanding the way that different people, you know, whether it's a piece of uh, entertainment of content, a medium that a story, whatever it is, that people respond in different ways to, to, to different things. Um, and so some of her background and training that has nothing to do with web three makes her uniquely equipped to be playing this type of role. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the sort of community leaders, managers, uh, we've all just sort of found a nice rhythm of being in the server, uh, interacting with the community. Um, and, you know, now it's just about really building more value around that and showing what we can do with so much of the trust that we've been, we've been given by, by all you guys. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really a beautiful place because, you know, like I, like I, like we've said, like the project hasn't even, you know, released and, and you already have, you know, this solid base of people, you know, um, investing their, their time, uh, at that, at this point, you know, and, and, and building that kind of relationship is just going to make the investment in the project. Um, I believe that much stronger. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely excited. I think it's an, I think that that like the reality of how quickly people have sort of grabbed onto this and, and by the way, because all these projects, they're, they're pieces of clay, right? And there's yeah. not a sculptor, right? We sort of all play different roles in, in evolving it. Um, and it really only is successful, not just if, you know, people stay engaged, but if they are upfront about what they want to see. And so, you know, I've, seen like in the server, particularly when we get like negative feedback, I think it's a really great thing because we're figuring this out all together as we go along. Um, we know what the overarching goals are, but we also know that inside of that, there's so much more to be done. And I think the reason people are glomming onto this and, and, and wanting to be a part of this is because I think we're filling a need. I think that the need is that the content that we're seeing today, the stories that are being told, the ability to connect over those stories is not where people want it to be. And so let's give people an opportunity to take it where they want it to go. 
Yeah, we're we're missing um, um, valuable curators um, anymore in in, you know, kind of, you know, we're at the behest of of each streaming service to kind of curate and tell us, you know, based off of data points, what what we want to see. But like what this is doing is kind of allowing the community to, you know, in real time curate what they want to see. And I think it's a, I think it's an absolutely beautiful project. I'm, I'm really excited for it. Do you have a, a target launch uh, for the NFT yet? Or uh... we are going to be announcing that probably in the next three or four days. Oh, excellent. Um, and the target date is relatively soon. Excellent. Very cool. I will say that it's coming down the pike. You know, we wanted to be really sort of deliberate with the timing around the market and sort of the volatility around that. Um, You know, I'm not sure, though, that the market is going to stabilize out anytime soon. You know, I I don't really want to get into like the my macro thoughts because they could be totally off. Right. But what I do know is that we have a community of people that are really excited about getting this thing up and running. And it's not really about the macro trends for us anymore. It's about answering to, you know, this community that is ready for this, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely, definitely agree with that. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, the, the market right now um, being as it is, um, has it thrown any wrenches in what the plan was to be or, or are you kind of, you know, um, allowing the, uh, just the project to kind of, um, take the drive? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I don't think it's really thrown any wrenches. I think for us, it's really about sort of finding the right forums in which to talk about this project. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so we're really excited about NFT NYC coming up in 12 days now. I'm not sure when your listeners will listen to this, but that's, you know, June 20th, 21st, 22nd in New York City. We will have a presence there. Um, you know, we are going to be popping on a couple more um, exposure opportunities, mostly things that we feel like are really on brand. You know, I think what's really been damaged in this cycle, this, you know, this bear cycle has been the projects that are paying for promotion that are like ceaselessly trying to share communities back and forth that are mm-hmm. basically, you know, saying this is a potential asset that could 100 X. <clears throat> I'm not saying this is that the visible project isn't. I'm saying that our journey <clears throat> to 100 X value is going to be so much more rewarding than just getting to 100 X value. So it hasn't thrown a wrench in our plans. I think, We've tried to be pretty deliberate all along about this. Um, We're auditing our smart contract right now just to make sure that, and and by the way, I think it's something that more projects should be doing is, you know, it's a security measure that really should be required. um, And like, you should disclose that to your audience, which we will do. Um, And we're going to demonstrate, you know, the security and the transparency of our system. Uh, It's sort of the last chapter here for us from a developmental perspective um, before we release this thing to the world. It's awesome. It's awesome. I cannot wait. Uh, at this time, you want to go through the jauntlet and answer um, some oh, yeah. questions? All right. This, uh, as always, starts at the top. Uh, the one hit wonders. Uh, first one, Billy Joel or Elton John? Billy Joel. Yeah, you're an East Coast guy. You got to say it. Like I, it, it has to it has to happen. Uh, number two, Debbie Harry or Joan Jett? Uh, this one, I'm going to be totally frank with you. I had to do a little bit of research on Joan Jett. OK. I've always been a fan of Debbie Harry. 
All right. Oh, and the blind. So that's that, that's an easy one for me. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Number three, Aretha Franklin or Tina Turner? Aretha. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? I, you know, I thought that I was gonna say Nirvana, and yet I went back through the catalogs, and for me, it's Pearl Jam. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. They're just killer songwriters. Like they just crafted really, really perfect songs. Um, Janis Joplin or Stevie Nicks? Uh, this was the easiest question on the list for me, aside from Billy Joel, it's Stevie Nicks. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Okay. Uh, Beatles or the Stones? Uh, Beatles, except for Beast of Burden. Oh, it's a great song. I, I do a pretty good oh, cover of it song, myself. Man. Man. Oh, do you? Yeah, I do. You got to send me that, man. I'll, I'll, send, I'll, I'll send you a clip of it. You can. Uh... <laughs> uh, and the last one of the one hit wonders, Bohemian Rhapsody or Stairway to Heaven? You're talking to a failed guitar player. <laughs> So that you can answer that for you, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. very nice. Very nice. Uh, the next section is the top 10 countdown. Um, as, as I explained to you uh, in, in our messages back and forth, John can be whatever you want it to be, because that's what John is. Um, so uh, number one, what was your first John when you were a kid? What was the first thing you were obsessed with? So we're actually going to go way back here. Yeah. My first words were baby, baby, because of ooh, baby, baby. <laughs> uh, which um, from Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Wow, that's a perfect answer. My dad would put it on trying to get me to fall asleep. Wow, that's incredible. Do you, do you still find comfort in that song? I absolutely do. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because um, I, I, the olfactory sense is the closest one that's linked to our nervous, uh, our, our memory, you know, function in our brain. But for me, you know, I think music does something similar in allowing me to sort of find that, um, you know, foundational like memories. And that song gives me both comfort and relives a lot of memories, not from when I was just learning how to speak. But, you know, sure, of that. course, of course, uh, you know, they say uh, music is the cheapest form of time travel. Um, number two, what's your current, John? What are you into right now? Um, so for this one, I, I wanted to highlight one track for you, one song. It's uh, actually called Step by Step by Brax and Falcon. Uh, and it's featuring a group called Panda Bear or a guy called Panda Bear. It's just a great song. It's a feel good song. I listen to it driving up and down the PCH here in Los Angeles. That's awesome. I, I'm not familiar with it. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to check it out. I've, I've, I've listened to some Panda Bear. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm quite a fan. So um, very cool. Very cool. Uh, number three, what was your first concert? What was the first live show you went to? It was the Killers at the Boston University uh, Hockey Arena. And I sat, I got there with my friend and his dad way too early. And we got to the front row, you know, or like right up front next to the speakers. And I couldn't hear for a week. <laughs> I was like, I love this. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's an addiction that uh, I caught very young myself. Like, it, it's just the I, it, there's something very um, weird about the body vibration of very loud music. That like, there's nothing else that there's nothing else that matches that. It's beautiful. Right. Uh, number four, what was your last concert? What was the last show you went to? I went to see Boney Vare at the YouTube theater, um, which is like sort of like a coffee house type setting uh, here out here in Los Angeles. And it was, you know, it, it was, I think in October. So like the pandemic was still, is still a thing, but back then was very much still, you know, a concern of people. It was a really bizarre setting um, because it was, you know, he was playing like his, a lot of his rock 
you know, more upbeat hits and everyone was just sort of sitting there with their masks on. But when he got to some of his other, you know, I, I think they're kind of like ethereal tracks. Uh, it was incredible transformative experience. That's awesome. Yeah. I am a, I am a big fan. Like he just, um, and, and it, it's funny. Um, my girlfriend's a, a fan of his as well and, um, hates Taylor Swift, but loves that song that he did with Taylor Swift. Like it just sounds, it's a, it's, it's lo-fi goodness. I love it. It's lo-fi goodness. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> right. You know, it, it just hits that, it hits that feel, man. It's a, it's a perfect vibe. Uh, number five, what was your favorite concert? What was the best live show you ever saw? So, obviously this is a difficult question to answer. Any best is a difficult question to answer. The best all around experience for me was a Coldplay show. I don't love Coldplay's music. Like I love some other artists, but the pageantry that they put on for their shows, it's outstanding. Um, Yeah. That's cool. You know, I have a, a not, not as one of my favorite um, uh, concerts or anything, but one of the best live shows I've ever seen. And I've seen them a few times and and um, and, and I, I don't even own a single album of theirs is the Foo Fighters. It's kind of the same thing. Like, you know, like I don't not like them, but um, but live, the energy is just so incredible. Like it's just a very good live show that they put on or sure. put on, I guess, you know, uh, rest in peace, Taylor Hawkins. But um, but yeah. Um, good stuff there. Number six, uh, who have you never seen live that you wish you would have? They can be living or dead. Um, I, so, you know, I actually, <laughs> I went into this conversation still thinking about that conversation, about that question. I think I would have to go, you know, I would, it just feels like the Beatles are a no brainer to me. But the reason I say that is more so because of the Beatles fever in the sixties in the United States and trying to like go back there and be a part of that. Um, it's either that or Led Zeppelin at uh, Madison square garden. Yes. Yes. Good answers. Good answers. Uh, number seven, name an unappreciated John name, something you wish had a little more shine to it. So I just don't think this has any shine anymore, but it's one of my all time great feel good tracks is Saturday love by, by Sherelle. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Very good. Look, shining some spotlight on some good stuff here, man. Cool. Uh, number eight, what's your favorite album? Um, so I'm going to give an answer and I'm going to want to change it later. Mm-hmm. Give it to you now. And I think it's Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. Oh my God. What a beautiful, beautiful album. Like the, uh, the sound of the, 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 like there's a very specific thing about that album that I love and it's the sound of the bass lines on every single one of those tracks. And it's just the way it mixed. It's mixed. It like hits me in my spine and, and it'll stop me in my tracks. Anytime any one of those songs comes on. I'm just pulling up that album. uh, The, 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 the track list right here. There's not a song on there. That's not incredible. No. No, I mean, like, no. Sweet Thing, like, is just phenomenal. Way Young Lovers. Do, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. What a perfect, perfect album. Yeah. So yeah. That's, there. Yeah. You're not going to change that one. That's 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 a good answer. <laughs> cool. uh, number nine, name an artist whose output you'll consume anything they release. Uh, went totally different genre here for you. But uh, recently, it's been it's been J. Cole for a couple of years now. Yeah. Yeah. He's at the top of the game. Um, I think that his the tracks that he goes on and his wordsmithing, it's just, it's all like top, top tier. I think I'd like, 
<laughs> take this for what it's worth. I think I like, you know, excellence regardless of genre. So like if something is just objectively fantastic, uh, I'll generally enjoy it. There are limits to that. I don't love Screamo, but I know some people do. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've not found music that I don't No, That's not true. Um, let me let me word this perfectly because um, I, I don't there's no music that I don't like. But I, what I will say is I have a very, very thin, very hair thin um, trigger for um, contemporary pop country like uh, like and it does not take much for a song to push me over the edge and say that I hate it. Um, but yeah, there, are, there I, are some I, that I, are like it's you know what it is for me. It's um, it's um, uh, fake nostalgia. That's what drives me nuts. And a contemporary pop country is so much fake nostalgia about things that did not happen. Like, oh, remember we were at the at the truck at the lake. I'm I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I'm thinking about like, hmm, I wonder what he thinks about Zach Brown Band. And a lot of Zach Brown Band is fantastic. But a lot of it taps into exactly what you're talking about. And it's a thin line. It's a thin line. Like if it's if it's done too much, it'll push me over. Like if it if if it's, you know, if every song is made up, you know, like I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, it's not about an authenticity thing. Like it doesn't have to be 100 percent. But if you're laying into it too much and then that becomes essentially to me in my head what what the driving force is, it'll push me right over. And that's it. Totally with you. <laughs> uh, the 10th and final one of the top 10 countdown. What is your favorite John of all time? Can be anything you want it to be. So I stayed with music here. Um, and I just went with a song. Uh, this is without a doubt my favorite song of all time is Waiting in Vain by Bob Marley and the Willers. Beautiful song. Another another cover of mine. I, we're gonna have to get you out to one of my shows. <laughs> it's uh yeah, I'll grab my brother. Well, you know, from Berlin. Next time I'm in town, you let me know when you have a show. Oh uh, yeah. But I was going to say, it's been my ringtone, not my ringtone, my alarm that I wake up to for about five years is that song. And you would think that I would have gotten tired of it. But all I hear before I wake up is the first three, you know, drumming. And then the song starts and I'm always hitting it right after the. And so I don't hear the rest of the song. Um, But I yeah, I love that song. That, That one. That one's that one's it. That's my John. That is a beautiful, beautiful track. So um, if anybody is interested in kind of checking out what the visible project is, what's the uh, tell them the best way to track you down. Yeah, for sure. So um, if you have any questions just for me, you can find me on Twitter. It's green underscore thumb. Elliot Green, my name ends with a E. So G-R-E-N-E. Um, visible project is thevisibleproject.io. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at the visible project. Um, and jump into our Discord space, man, because, you know, we have a good time in there. We have a lot of really cool, interesting people and perspectives. And you know, I think we think we're pretty welcoming. We hope the community feels that way um, while well, the community sets that. So I think they do feel that way. Uh, so, yeah, that's where you can find us. And, you know, excited to grow and be on this journey. And, you know, Nate, I'm just I'm really excited that um, you're on this with us. You know, thank you for using this platform to take a minute. To talk about this project it's uh you know i i knew that we were going to meet some really cool people when we started this project you know simply because spike exists in this world of really cool people and people who are chasing creativity and in, in, in the film and tv and music space are usually really interesting but i've really just been blown away and um you know 
putting you right at the top of that list. So thank you. Oh, well, I, I absolutely appreciate it. And thank you for creating um, a beautiful, not just a beautiful community, but a beautiful project. Like I said, um, as, as a fan of film and as somebody who wanted to be a filmmaker, like I think what you're doing is very, very important and very, very needed right now um, in this kind of, um, you know, confusing space of, of being able to fi- not just find content, but to get content out there and get it in front of the people who will appreciate it. And, um, I absolutely appreciate everything you guys are doing, um, for this project. So, uh, thank you for that. And also thank you for doing this and talking to me today. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. My thanks again to Elliot for joining me on the pod today. You can find more about The Visible Project and the generative She's Gotta Have It NFTs at thevisibleproject.io. You can follow The Visible Project on Twitter at visible underscore project and on Instagram at thevisibleproject.io. And hop on the Discord and join the community because you know what? You'll find me there as well. If you want to seek out Elliot directly, you can find him on Twitter at green underscore thumb. That's G-R-E-E-N-E underscore thumb. Links to all of those will, of course, be in the show notes. Please be sure to subscribe to the Yo, That's My John podcast wherever you get your podcast from. And hey, you know darn well that you can get yourself a super awesome John Scout merit badge for citizenship of the world just by rating and reviewing us. So why don't you do it? Don't forget to visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com for articles, merchandise, and links to all of the previous episodes of this podcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yothatsmyjohn for updates and live streams. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at yothatsmyjohn and search Yo That's My John on YouTube to find the Yo That's My John YouTube channel. Up there right now, two new videos. One, an unboxing video for more disc golf discs because, as I say all the time, I am a disc golfer. And two, a remix of the Love From Philly track that G-Love released on his new album, Philadelphia, Mississippi, by me, with lyrics by me. So check it out. Like and subscribe the heck out of that ish. We want to hear from you. Reach out, reach out, and touch some John. Well, that's it. Another week, another episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. Blue skies. Until next time, everybody. Hey, yo, displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure. Your taste in music doesn't have to be... Yo, That's My John is a Lonely Monk production written and produced by yours truly, Nate Runkle. Theme song by Phil Tyler Music featuring Nate 3.0. Special thanks to Fox Run Brands, DX Ferris, Andrew Scott, Natalie Runkle, and the incredibly brilliant and wickedly stunning Katie Daubney. If you or anyone you know has any ideas they would like to share or any guests they would like to hear on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at yo that's my john at gmail.com. Or you can leave an audio message for us and possibly hear yourself on a future episode by visiting anchor.fm slash ytmj slash message. Until next time, be sure to displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure and shout. To the world, yo, that's my John. <laughs> <laughs>